Is it true that human beings are not just sophisticated apes, but specifically and specially made in the image of God? Is it true that the Bible is theologically accurate and historically reliable in all matters to which it speaks? Is it true that miracles happen and that God is intimately involved in the affairs of the human race? Is it true that Jesus Christ lived and died and on the third day was raised from the dead on that first Easter? Is it true that there are angels and demons and an invisible spirit world and life after death? Is it true that heaven is a real place and hell is a real place and real people go to one of those two destinies? Is it true the cross of Christ has saving significance and that those who, are in, uh, those who believe into it are saved? Is it true that God loves you, knows you, cares about you, and wants to be in a relationship with you? And if all this is true, how do we know? If all this is true, what are the reasons to believe it? If all this is true, what is the evidence to substantiate it? If all this is true, why doesn't everybody believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that tonight and in the coming weeks, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. It's really not important what any human being has to say, but it is vitally important what you have to say. So I pray that you would illuminate our minds to the glory of Christ. In whose name I pray, amen. Well, good evening and welcome to our Wednesday night series called, Is It True? Um, in a world of competing ideologies and heartbreaking tragedies, can there really be a solid intellectual basis for the Christian faith. Have you ever thought about a question like that? In a world of competing ideologies and heartbreaking tragedies, can there really be a solid intellectual basis for the Christian faith? Pastor Jason and I believe that there is. And that's what we're going to be talking to you about, Lord willing, over the next several months. Now, admittedly, we're a couple of theological nerds who met a few years ago, and we really hit it off. And one of the areas that we discovered where we have a common passion is in this whole area of apologetics. Um, and I'll define that in a moment. But we're both convinced that this subject is not just for theological nerds. It is for every believer who has any intersection with the world at all, in any way. Um, quite obviously, Christians live and move and have our being in a world that does not always see things the way we see them. Can I get an amen? Uh, we rub shoulders with people who do not share our foundational profession that Jesus Christ is Lord and our central declaration that he is risen from the dead. Um, you know that to be the case. One response that we hear quite often is um, we hear it from our neighbors, we hear it in the media, we hear it in books. Well, that may be true for you, but it isn't true for me which is really a silly response when you consider what the word true really means. Now, I've already used that word true 18 times tonight. Uh, and next week, Pastor Jason is going to give a presentation on what it means. What does it mean for something to be true? 
what is the truth? Remember Pilate's question, standing before Jesus. You read about it in chapter uh, 18 of John's gospel. What is truth? He didn't know that he was staring truth in the face. But what makes something true, and how do we know? Um, Pastor Jason's going to talk about that next week. And after he gives his presentation, I'm going to argue with him. I'm going to dispute with him. Uh, I'm going I'm to try to poke holes in what he presents. Uh, not, him, not to make him mad, not to make him look bad, um, but to, well, to make this as practical as we possibly can. For you and for me, as we rub shoulders with people in the world who don't see things the way we do. Um, people at your work, your coworkers, perhaps, your, your classmates in school, maybe your professors or your teachers who ridicule you for your Christian faith. Maybe even your own parents or your own siblings under your own roof. The world has a way of saying things to Christians that cause us to sort of shut our mouths and we're reduced to silence because we don't exactly know how to respond to some of the zingers that they throw at us. And so we're going to argue a little bit. We're going to dispute a little bit. Um, and uh, I, I think that one of the reasons we want to do this is not only dismantling the slogans that the world uses to just shut us up, but also to, I think that's part of our discipleship as believers. And so we're looking to enhance our own discipleship as we set out on this journey, as well as be effective in our outreach. So now for some who are here, and this is totally fine, you may just be getting, hopefully getting your faith strengthened. You're not here for any apologetic purpose or for any um, building up of, you know, your skills and outreach. You're just wondering, is it true? And that's okay. You're welcome to be here. Uh, For others who've been in the faith for some amount of time, we want to talk about how do we ramp up our skills in being, giving an effective response uh, to some of what the world has to say. So the format is designed to enhance our discipleship and, and our effectiveness in outreach. Um, in any event, next week we're going to put Pastor Jason on the hot seat after he gives us his presentation. And uh, some weeks that's going to be reversed. I'll give the presentation, then he'll, he'll put me on the hot seat. And um, we're going to walk up and down the, the aisle here with a microphone, and, and you're permitted to ask questions. Also, if, if you're the kind of person, you have burning questions, and you don't, you're really uncomfortable asking them in a forum like this, um, you can, you can uh, text me your question or email me your question. I've got it set on vibrate, and yours should be set on vibrate too. Set it to stun now. Um, and, and we'll get your question, and you don't even have to open your mouth here. Okay? So there it is, my, uh, my phone number and email, and next week, you know, probably more in earnest next week, we'll, uh, we'll be doing more of this, and we'll have Jason's email up there, and you can, you can pester him. Anyway. <laughs> Hopefully, at the end of this series, brother, we'll still be friends. You'll still still be on staff here at Fleetwood Bible Church. Um, It has been a blessing. We're so excited about this. Uh, We can hardly sleep. And uh, is it fair to say that Satan threw just about every roadblock he possibly could in getting this off the ground tonight? Um, But here we are. Praise God. Um, So we're going to have presentation time, but also question and answer time, handouts and video clips and all that. Um, Now... Let me warn you, neither of us is a walking encyclopedia, and so we may not be able to handle every possible question you throw at us here uh, on, on the spot. Uh, and if, if that happens, we'll just we'll go do our homework, we'll research, and we'll come back and clean up the mess we left from the previous week. Uh, both of us have been involved in debates and conversations with skeptics, and we'll probably be talking about that over the next several weeks. Um, 
But we're not professional apologists like William Lane Craig or Ravi Zacharias uh, or James White or some of the others. Now, that's not a cop-out. It's just a fact. Um, we, uh, we're pastors, and so there are other matters that we need to attend to throughout the week, like weddings and funerals and hate mail. I, just, I got some hate mail today. You know, it's just the way it's, it's the nature. Uh, if you're a professional apologist, you know, you have time to sit down and think through every rant that Christopher Hitchens makes or, or Stephen Hawking makes against theism or the belief in God. We don't. But we know that uh, apologetics is an important tool in our toolbox, and we try to sharpen them as much as we can so that we can be effective and hopefully equip some others for this task that is so very important. If I ever get another degree, that's a big if, uh, if it's not in Old Testament studies, which is my passion, it'll probably be an applied apologetics uh, because this is uh, sort of a secondary passion. So... Um, well, we've been using that term apologetic, so let's define it. Unfortunately, the word conjures up all sorts of ideas um, about being sorry for something. You know, um, after burning the brownies, I was apologetic for not being able to take a dessert to home cell group. Um, that has nothing to do with uh, how we're using this word. Apologetics is not the art of being sorry that you're a Christian. Apologetics is the art of making the other guy sorry that you're a Christian. <laughs> I don't, I, that's not, I'm just kidding. Um, apologetics is a branch of Christian theology that seeks to provide a rational justification for Christianity's truth claims. Okay, apologetics is a branch of theology, a whole massive study of theology which involves theology proper, the study of God's attributes, Christology, the study of Christ, homartology, the study of sin, ecclesiology, the study of the church, uh, all those ologies, all of that. Apologetics is one branch of theology, and it tries to answer the question, what are the rational grounds for believing that Christianity is true? This word apologetics in the original actually shows up in 1 Peter 3.15. The apostle Peter writes, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. He's talking to believers. Followers of Christ, it says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, said Peter. Now, the word answer there, always be prepared to give an answer, is the Greek word apologia. Apologia. From where we get the word apologetics. It's, uh, it's an important word. Also, it, and by the way, that word, apologia, comes from two Greek words, a preposition, apo, plus the Greek word, legeo, which means to say, to speak for. So those two words come together to form this word, apologia, which means it's translated here in 1 Peter 3.15 as answer. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia. Uh, sometimes it's translated defense. Always be prepared to give a defense. Your translation might say that. Or sometimes it's translated explanation. Always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that is in you. An answer. An apologia. Uh, it's a word that's used in Luke chapter 2 and verse 47. Lest you think this is just for highfalutin theologians. This is used of the boy Jesus in the temple when everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his apologias. His answers. Even as a child, Jesus was doing apologetics. 
So, apologia is where the word apologetics come from. Now, notice also in 1 Peter 3.15, the word reason. Always be prepared to give an apologia for the hope that is in you. Give the reason for the hope that is in you. An answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. So this is almost, almost a cognate, almost a synonym, I should say. The word reason here is the famous Greek word logos. Logos, which is, in this context, means cause or justification or rationale. So you've got, you've got some... Let's read that passage then in light of those definitions. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Here's one of the ways you do this. Here's one of the ways you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be prepared to give an answer, a defense, an explanation to everyone who asks you to give the reason, the cause, the justification, the rationale for the hope that you have. Now, quite obviously, these words are mind words. These are thought words. They're cognitive words. Um, In other words, there is an intellectual component to the Christian faith. I'm sorry, we can't get around it. There is an intellectual component to the Christian faith. Uh, It's not the only component. Uh, We might speak of the emotional component or the psychological component or the volitional component component or the spiritual component of our faith and other components and dimensions and aspects to the Christian faith. But the intellectual component is a vital component of the Christian faith. There's content to it. There's a message and it's true. Now, because thinking is hard work, can I get an amen? It feels too much like homework. Because thinking is hard work, This is where many people drop out. Um, But remember, the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. One of the ways we love God is with our minds. Using it and allowing it, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be renewed. Now, in saying that, we're not trying to make everybody into a scholar. That's not the point. But every one of us can give an apologia for why we believe and why we have this hope in us. Ravi Zacharias, um, he has, his newsletter is called Let My People Think. I like that. I like that. And notice, in the apologetic task, says Peter, do this with gentleness and respect. And that's where some other people drop out. <laughs> do this with gentleness and respect. Our goal is never to win an argument. Our goal is to never make somebody else look bad. It's never to upstage anybody um, in persuading them to the truth of Christianity. And so there's a nice little warning tucked in here in this this apologetic task. Thank you, Ken. Now, um, are are we okay so far? Are we all together? Did that, uh, that wasn't overly cerebral. Okay, we're just getting started. By the way, come well caffeinated each Wednesday night, okay? The broad divisions of apologetics. One way to look at the discipline of apologetics is to divide it up into two broad categories. And the first category is offensive apologetics as opposed to defensive apologetics or positive apologetics as opposed to negative apologetics. 
Now, none of those terms is, is sufficient in and of themselves, but it's a place to get started. So let's talk first about offensive or positive apologetics. Uh, and be sure to get the accent on the right syllable there. Not offensive apologetics. Offensive. Think football, okay? Offense and defense. Um, offensive apologetics. In uh, positive apologetics or offensive apologetics, you're trying to put forward your positive case for why you believe Christianity to be true. You're not trying at this point to answer objections. You're not trying to defend Christianity against attack. Rather, you're going on the offense to give positive grounds and positive reasons for thinking that Christianity is true. And offensive or positive apologetics itself can be divided into two subcategories. Classical apologetics and evidential apologetics. Now, this is the first lecture, and so we're just getting started. We have to define our terms. And so we'll try to do this in a fun manner. I, I don't know how much fun we can make of this. This is pretty cerebral. And we're going to love the Lord by thinking. But let's try to define these terms. Classical apologetics is sometimes called natural theology. Natural theology. Natural theology consists of arguments and evidences for the existence of God that do not appeal to the Bible. That do not appeal to to special revelation, the scriptures. Uh, sometimes natural theology is associated with general revelation as opposed to special revelation. Special revelation being what God has revealed in the Bible. Okay, so natural theology deals with general revelation. Um, in general revelation, we say that God has revealed himself in the world wholly apart from what he's revealed in Scripture. Okay, God has revealed himself in the world. Let me give you some Bible on that, ironically so. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. That is the heavens. Stars, the sun, the moon. All, all that you see in the natural world they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And what they're speaking of is the glory of God. Okay? That's natural theology. That's general revelation. Let me give you another one. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. Okay. See what Paul is saying there. God's eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being comprehended or understood by what's been made in the natural world. General revelation. In other words, natural theology or general revelation, according to the scriptures, should lead to certain legitimate theological conclusions about God. Now, general revelation is general in two senses. It is, first of all, it is available to all of mankind everywhere at every point on the timeline in history. And it gives common, broad-spectrum information about God. It's not special or specific. It's just general. Paul says his divine character and his eternal power. Those things can be known just from the created order. Okay? 
So, for example, through gen general revelation, we may learn that God exists, but we would not necessarily learn that God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? We would need special revelation to learn that God is trinity. Father, Son, and Holy. You're not going to find that in nature. You might look at nature and conclude God exists, but you're not going to necessarily conclude he's trinity. Okay? So the arguments of natural theology attempt to give evidences and arguments for the existence of God in this, in this very sense, this general sense. And in that sense, natural theology is something really that could be practiced by any monotheist. What's a monotheist? Anyone who believes in one God, and that would include Jewish, Christian, or Muslim believers. Jewish, Christian, and Muslim believers all practice a form of natural theology. I'm biased, obviously. I think we're better at it than Christians and Muslims. But any monotheist can practice natural theology in this kind of classical apologetics. But natural theology, if it is successful, classical apologetics, if it's successful, it will disqualify atheism, the assertion that there is no God, or agnosticism, uh, the sense that we're not sure if God exists or not. If you're successful in classical apologetics or natural theology, um, you're, you're going to disqualify those views. Um, it would also disqualify something called pantheism. Uh, the belief that God is everything and everything is God. God is in everything and everything is in God. And there's really no demarcation between creator and creation. So if you're successful in classical, the uh, classical apologetics or natural theology, you come to the conclusion God exists, but you're not yet at the Christian God. Okay, More is required. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Now, let me review for you some of the, the arguments that are prominent in classical apologetics or natural theology. Um, and I'll simply introduce them tonight, and we'll look at them more closely in the future presentations. This is just a bird's-eye view tonight. This gets sort of oriented in, in the terrain of the discipline. Okay? The first argument that often is pointed to by classical apologists is the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. Now, what does cosmological mean? Cosmos simply means, it's the Greek word for the world. Cosmos refers to the world. It refers to an ordered system. More precisely, the word cosmos means to bring order out of chaos. Ladies, it's where we get the word cosmetic. You're, you're bringing order out of chaos. Sorry. Um, it, it is where the word comes from. But the cosmological argument it's really a family of arguments that tries to argue that there must be a first cause or a sufficient reason for the existence of the world. And there's a variety of versions to this. There's, uh, first of all, the temporal version. I'll do this quickly. And this version of the cosmological argument, the temporal version, it argues that whatever begins to exist has to have had a cause. Things don't just pop into existence out of nowhere. They have to be started by something or someone or for some sufficient reason. Um, but the universe did begin to exist, and therefore the universe must have a cause. That cause, goes this argument, is God. God is the first cause. And this argument would depend on proving that the universe was not eternal in the past, but had a definitive moment of beginning in a moment of time. Um, 
that, that, and we need to either present good philosophical or scientific evidence for the fact that the, the world as we know it was not eternal in infinity past, but it had a beginning point. That's actually where the Big Bang becomes a very good argument for believers. Because what is a Big Bang? When it bung, it started. Is that the past tense of bang? Now, I'm not arguing for Big Bang. I'm just saying there are arguments that can be employed. It sounds too much like bong, doesn't it? I see Ken laughing over there. Sorry. Um, and I'm not sure why I looked at him. But I said. <laughs> so anyway, the universe has to have a cause. Now, that's the temporal version. There's another line of exploration when it comes to the cosmological argument, and it's, it's something called the contingency version. Um, and this basically says that anything that exists has to have an explanation as to why it exists, either in the necessity of its own nature or due to some external cause. Some external cause brought it into being. You didn't bring yourself into being. You owe your existence to mom and dad, right? Or mom and test tube or mom and, you know, I mean, something. You have a cause. You have a first cause, and you're not your own first cause. Same thing with the universe. Um, and then this, this line of reasoning goes that the, the universe is a thing that contingently exists. In other words, it doesn't exist by the necessity of its own nature. Therefore, it must have a ground and a first cause somewhere, some sufficient reason for it coming into existence. And this contingency version of the cosmological argument works even if the universe is eternal in infinity past. This one works. Um, because you still have to ask the question, even if the universe is eternal in infinity past to the present moment, why is it here? Why is it here? Why is there something rather than nothing? So this version of the cosmological argument actually works whether or not matter is eternal. But let's face it. As soon as I say that, that statement, matter is eternal, that's not observable, is it? Nobody was around a gazillion years ago or, a, a thousand year, or uh, several thousand years ago to see the first moment of time. That takes us actually out of the realm of physics into another branch of theology called metaphysics. It's not observable. And so all you have now are hypotheses and philosophical argumentation. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is not observed. So you're out of the realm of physics into the realm of metaphysics. Okay, that's important. We'll come back to that in, in the future study. But these would be two versions of the cosmological argument. Look at the world. It's here. Why? And where did it come from? How did it start? Cosmological argument would say that God started it. Okay, the second argument is related to the first. It's called the teleological argument. Now, theologians like to use big words, Greek words, Latin words. Don't be put off by that. We'll explain all of these terms. The teleological argument, uh, well, the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S, means... That's exactly what it means. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it means goal or end or purpose. Or sometimes you'll see it translated consummation. Telos. Um, goal, purpose, consummation. The teleological argument basically says that the universe exhibits incredible complexity. And this complexity cannot be plausibly explained away by chance or physical necessity. Uh, and therefore, the best explanation of the complex order in the universe is due to its design. In other words, the presence of order in the universe requires the existence of an orderer. Are you with me? Um, 
And that orderer must be a transcendent, intelligent mind that has designed this universe. Um, if, if while you're walking through a field, you suddenly see a watch on the ground, you bend over and pick it up and you hear it ticking, you see the secondhand sweeping and all of that uh, that a watch does, um, you conclude that there is a watchmaker behind the watch. Somewhere at a point in time in history, that watch came into being and somebody ordered it to be what it is and do what it does. It didn't just happen. It's got a purpose. And obviously the purpose is to tell time. Well, in the same way, if one studies the more complex design of the universe, we naturally conclude, just like that person concluded there's a watchmaker somewhere behind the watch, you look at the complexity of this universe, you, you have to conclude there's a designer behind it. Now, the teleological argument was thought to be delivered a severe blow by, anybody want to guess by whom? Darwin. Darwinian evolution. We have an explanation now for why everything is ordered and designed. It's called natural selection and random mutation at the genetic level. And so for many, many years, the teleological argument fell out of favor because Darwinism held the day. Now, it's interesting, in, in the last several decades, the teleological argument has come roaring back in part because of the, the discoveries of scientists in several disciplines. It's really fascinating to watch this. If, if you look at the journals um, where they write about this, um, central to this, this idea of a teleological design or an order is something called, and you don't have to write this down, we'll come back to it later, something called the anthropic principle. Now, the anthropic principle, anthropos is the Greek word for man. So anthro, anthro, uh, the anthropic principle means the man principle. In other words, what this argument is saying is that it looks, best we can tell, by looking at the world, it looks like everything was designed and fine-tuned to allow for conscious human life at this time. Are you with me? Everything in the universe is fine-tuned to sustain life as we know. I'll give you just one example. Water. When H2O freezes, when water freezes, it becomes what? It becomes ice. Is ice heavier or lighter than water? It's lighter. And that's why ice floats. That's why lakes freeze from the top down, not the bottom up. If ice were heavier than water, lakes and rivers would freeze from the bottom up. And if they froze from the bottom up, everything in a lake or a stream or an ocean would instantly die, not survive. The food chain would be interrupted and life as we know it would be impossible. It looks like there's a reason ice is lighter than water. It just appears that way. Because many elements, many molecules, when they go from their liquid state to their solid state, they get heavier, not lighter. Water is different. So this is the anthropic principle. In various fields of physics and astrophysics and quantum mechanics and biochemistry, various discovers, discoveries have been made, and they repeatedly disclose the existence of intelligent carbon-based life on Earth at this time that depends upon, in the words of... Uh, William Lane Craig depends upon, quote, a delicate balance of physical and cosmological quantities such that were any one of those quantities to be slightly altered, 
the balance would be destroyed, and life would not exist. Now, what does all that mean? Here's how Michael Behe put it, biochemist at Lehigh University, in his book, Darwin's Black Box. He said, cells, if you just look at cells, it's really impossible for them to have evolved to their current state because if you take just one item, if you alter it slightly, take one item out of it, the thing can't exist. And in his famous phrase, cells, he said, are irreducibly complex. They were designed to be that way. So says Michael Behe, who's a believer. Francis Collins, also a believer. Anybody, you've ever heard the name Francis Collins? Heads up the Genome Project. He's a believer because he has looked so closely at the gene level of, of our existence and said there is order and design and purpose here. Now, the crude analogy that's often used, we'll get this down here to, to a more, less, slightly less cerebral level, the crude analogy often employed for this argument is that a random explosion in a printing press could not possibly produce a dictionary. Make sense? Okay, you've got this printing press, and, and the thing goes kaboom, and, and out comes this dictionary. Perfectly alphabetically arranged. But as Ravi Zacharias rightly points out, there's something even more basic at play here, and that is where where'd the alphabet come from in the first place. So he often argues not uh, from design, but to design. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but anyway, that's the teleological argument. It's a fun one, and we'll have some fun unpacking that as we go. Uh, the, the next one, the anthropological argument, or the argument from morality. By the way, let me stop there. Is, that, is this working for you? Are you with me so far? Just doing a bird's eye overview at this point. Okay, the anthropological, let me check my... Dear Tim, I love you. Oh, that's from Sonia. Never mind. This is an argue, a family of arguments um, that tries to demonstrate the existence of God based upon our moral experience. Um, and the overarching argument is built on the premise that objective moral values exist. Objective moral values exist. They're timeless. They're true for every culture. It doesn't matter where you go on planet Earth. There will be objective moral values. Um, in other words, there is where where they come from, though. That's they they come from an innate, intuitive sense from within a person that some things are right and some things are wrong. To love a child is right. To rape a child is wrong. Now we've all observed that it doesn't matter where you go on the planet; there will be differences in customs and even differences in values, and yes, even some differences in morality. However, there is a baseline morality under which no culture will go and say that is right. Raping a baby is never said by any culture to be right, but in the history of humankind, some cultures have gotten close. You've heard of child sacrifice, but this argument—the argument, the argument of, from morality is how C.S. Lewis opens his very famous uh, book called Mere Christianity. He starts with the moral argument. And a, he makes a very persuasive case. And basically, it's, it, it goes like this. In some cultures, yes, it's true. In some cultures, you can have ten kids. In some cultures, you can only have two. China comes to mind. But in no culture can you just abuse those children. But here again, that gets pressed, doesn't it? Because even in China... If it's a daughter born instead of a boy, she might not survive. 
But most of the enlightened world will look at that and say, that's horrible, that has to be wrong. Where did you get that sense of right and wrong? Well, there seems to be within me a moral law. And that, according to this argument, comes from the moral lawgiver. You have a sense of right and wrong, call it conscience if you will, but that sense that you have inside of you, that moral law by which you distinguish right and wrong, however enlightened or depraved it may be, it comes from the moral lawgiver. Now, how did you get there? When we actually unpack the moral argument, we'll look at that more closely. But one syllogism captures that, I think, pretty well. It goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And that's really the logical syllogism that gets you there. Now, that is a valid argument, and its success will depend upon whether or not you can demonstrate that the premises are true. Objective moral values exist, and um, if God doesn't exist, then these values don't exist either. Now, it's actually fun to try this out on mostly college students. Where are our college students? There they are. University students are often taught, and actually Joey in his testimony last week talked about this. Professors just, I mean, ridicule him left and right. But university students are often taught to believe that relativism is true, that, that their relativism with respect to that first premise. There are no objective moral values, um, and there is no God, and so everything is relative. Do what you want, baby. If it feels good, do it. Do you know what relativism is? Uh, some of you survived the 60s. And yet, on the other hand, college students very often apprehend in, in the realm of objectively existing moral values. They do believe that things like tolerance are good, and tolerance and uh, love and fair play and justice, those things are good, and bigotry is bad, and um, homophobia is bad, right? So even relativists will talk the language of good and bad, good and evil. It's fascinating to watch. Well, how did you get there? There's a reason. Now, an atheist will say those are just culturally conditioned values. We would disagree with that, and we would try to demonstrate why. That's the moral argument. Okay. One more uh, in the classical apologetics, the ontological argument, the argument from being. Now, this is kind of cerebral, and I'll do this really quickly, but just to introduce it to you. The, the word ontos in Greek means being, means being or existence. And basically, this argument tries to demonstrate the being of God or the existence of God from the concept of God alone. It's the very concept of God. It argues that once you understand the concept of God, then you'll see that God must exist, that his non-existence is, in fact, impossible, because the concept of God is the concept of a necessarily perfect being. Now, this is a mind-bender, but there's an internal logic and a coherence to this argument that has withstood the test of time. That's why it's still around. Developed by a guy by the name of Anselm in the 10th century, uh, 11th century. And uh, it's still with us today, and there's a very good reason for it. So let me just introduce it to you tonight, to, tonight and then we'll come back and look at it again in more detail later. But here, here's the syllogism. Here's how it goes. Everyone can conceive of God, whether they believe him or not. Everyone can conceive of God. And the concept of God is that of... Uh, a perfect, infinite, unlimited being. And so for everything, there must be a cause as great or greater than the effect. 
Therefore, for the concept of God that we have, there must be an infinite, perfect, unlimited cause because that's our concept of God. And so the cause for that has to be equal to or greater than the effect. Now, I've lost about half of you at least, and that's okay. It took me about 12 years to get this one, but this is, this is pretty tightly argued. Um, you and I aren't infinite and unlimited and perfect, and so we could not have created such a concept ourselves. That's the argument of Anselm. So there has to be a cause outside of ourselves to create this concept of perfect, unlimited, essential being. All right, that's enough. Let's, let's move on. We'll come back to this. Those are some of the arguments that belong to classical apologetics or natural theology. Now, there's many more, but these are the most prominent. Modern classical apologists, people who do this and, and focus in this area, Norman Geisler is a, a popular name. Uh, I have his book here, Christian Apologetics by Norman L. Geisler. Another one who is very into classical apologetics is R.C. Sproul. I'm sure many of you have heard of R.C. Sproul. I have his book here called Classical Apologetics. What a towering intellect and a gift to the church. And there are many others. But uh, these professional apologists, uh, they're fun to read. If you have insomnia, they'll cure it. I guarantee you. Now, as we said, classical apologetics can only take you so far. It can only, if it succeeds, it only takes you to what? The conclusion, God exists, but not necessarily the Christian God, the one that you worship every Sunday. You, you need more. And that's where the second type of apologetics comes in, something called evidential apologetics. Evidences of the truth of the specifically Christian God. In other words, the God revealed in the arguments of natural theology has revealed himself in the history of Israel and specifically the pages of Scripture that talk about Jesus. That's what it's all about. Now, some specific Christian evidences. Um, if you were, are going to go so far with classical apologetics and finally help someone get to that conclusion, yeah, God exists, and then you start moving them on to specifically Christian belief, what are some tools in the toolbox? Well, first of all, archaeological corroboration. This is an evidence for the truthfulness of Scripture. What do I mean by archaeological corroboration? There is nothing that has ever been discovered that actually brings the scriptures into disrepute. Everything that's been discovered in some way, archaeologically, in some way corroborates the story of scripture. That's not the case with Mormon theology, by the way. There's nothing that's ever been dug up to verify any of the places or the artifacts mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm not busting on Mormonism. I'm just pointing that out as a fact. But when it comes to Scripture, what has been discovered? Let me just give you a few of them quickly. What has been discovered archaeologically that would corroborate, not prove, but corroborate the story of Scripture? Scarabs have been found with the name Baruch on them. Baruch was the secretary of Jeremiah. He actually wrote it all down. So we have archaeological evidence for his existence. We also just recently have found a coin with Melech David, King David, on it. That's pretty exciting. You know about King David. He's in the Bible. Now, does that prove the Bible's true? No, but it does corroborate what you read in the Bible. Um, we have archaeological proof for the existence of Pilate. Who was Pilate? The governor who tried Jesus, remember? Pilate. There's a stone with his name on it. Pontius Pilatus. It's a Latin. It was in a theater, and it was 
discovered in the 1960s. We now have archaeological proof for the existence of Pilate. We have archaeological proof for the existence of Caiaphas, the high priest who tried Jesus. Caiaphas, we found his bones. He died in his 60s. Um, we have archaeological proof for the practice of crucifixion. There was a right calcanean or heel bone discovered with an iron nail transfixed, going right through it. I've showed you pictures of that before. Some of you have seen it. We know crucifixion happened. It dates to the first century. So we could list out all the archaeological discoveries that actually corroborate what you read about in Scripture. That's an evidence. It's not a slam dunk, but it's evidence. And it's good evidence. And it would be marshaled and brought into a court of law and given in the merit that it's due. Secondly, fulfilled prophecies. One of the things that we could do to build our case that the Scriptures are true is how often prophecy is fulfilled, specifically prophecies about Jesus. The Old Testament talks about the coming Messiah. And how many times do you read in the New Testament how thus was fulfilled what was spoken of through so-and-so the prophet, and it's seen as in Jesus' coming has been predicted, his death has been predicted, his resurrection has been predicted, well, now it's all happened. And the mathematical probability that all of those prophecies could be fulfilled accidentally by somebody named Jesus, well, it's astronomically ridiculous. So we could marshal all of those Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus, and that's another evidence that we would bring into the courtroom of argumentation. Now, obviously, we're not going to do all of them tonight, but just, again, the bird's eye view here. Thirdly, we could explore the radical claims of Christianity, specifically the radical claims of Jesus. Almost universally it is recognized, I say almost universally it's recognized, that there's something that sets Jesus apart from every other religious guru. He said some ridiculous things about himself. That if any sane, normal person said them, you would have to conclude they're not sane or normal. For example... Jesus on one occasion said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. I only do the things I hear my Father uh, doing. I only say the things I hear him saying and so forth and so on. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. That's ridiculous. Unless it's true. Are you with me? And what explains this? What explains a man running around saying, I'm God? Now, he was much more subtle than that. He shared the titles of God, the attributes of God. He, sh he did things that only God can do, the forgiveness of sin. John chapter 8, they wanted to kill him. Uh, he says, before Abraham was, I am, taking to himself the name of God found way back in Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses out of the burning bush, I am that I am, Yahweh. They want to kill him. They know what he was saying. You, a mere man, making yourself equal with God. What explains somebody walking around doing that? Well, you've got some possibilities. And an evidential apologist will say, well, okay, here are your possibilities. Either Jesus is a lunatic. I mean, if I walked around saying I'm God, he needs to be admitted somewhere. Hurry. Right? I mean, seriously. So Tim's either a lunatic or he's a liar. In other words, Jesus knew he wasn't divine, but he was trying to give the impression that he was. So he's a liar. Um, or he is Lord. Lord, liar, lunatic, those are your options. 
I mean, various parts of the description of Jesus' conduct and the response to his character rule out him being a, a lunatic. He wasn't a lunatic. And other parts of his conduct and, and a lack of a clear motive rule out his being a liar. Therefore, Jesus was who he said he was. Um, so, the radical claims of Jesus of Nazareth, you've got to do something with them. Muhammad never claimed to be divine. Buddha never claimed to be divine, except in the sense that everybody's divine. Well, hallelujah. Can you demonstrate that you're divine? Did you make the world? I can't make my checkbook balance. All right. All right. <laughs> um, how about the evidence of Jesus' miracles and resurrection? Many New Testament scholars today, even critical ones, will admit Jesus was a miracle worker. At least he left that impression. Now, they will very often pass it off as, well, he was sort of a trickster. You know, he just, uh, he, he, it was a psychological healing. It wasn't a real physical healing. And, but they admit he got this huge following because he did something that really impressed a whole lot of people. You know, you've got lunch for three people and you suddenly feed thousands. That's, a, I'd, I'd go check him out. And that happened. Um, the evidence of Jesus' miracles and resurrection. What do you do with this empty tomb business? And really, quite honestly, folks, when it comes to apologetics, this is the question. We could debate about a lot of things. We could spend a lot of time talking about evolution. We could talk about ethics. We could talk about, we could talk about a lot of things, but this is the question. And if you're disputing with someone, if you're giving an answer, an apologia, this is the question. And this is going to, we're going to spend a lot of time here on how do you defend the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Was that tomb empty on the first Easter Sunday? Paul said, if you don't have a resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You take the resurrection out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity left. You've got nothing. So what are the evidences for the empty tomb? If we can establish that in a reasonable argument uh, argument that is intellectually satisfactory, then that's it right there. That, that's game, set, and match. Are, are you with me? That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. That's game, set, and match right there. And some of these other questions and tension points I can live with. If I've got an empty tomb, then we've got a God who became one of us and took our place on the cross and rose again, and that's, that's the whole ball of wax. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Did it happen? And why do many people believe it, but some people don't? Quite honestly, when I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to be doing this. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I want to do some thinking before I get there. How about you? All right. Well, these are some of the broad areas of, of positive or offensive apologetics. And uh, the goal is to move you, again, to beyond just belief in God to specifically the belief in the God of the Bible. And on the basis of these twin thrusts, we would present a positive case as to why we think Christianity is true. And so we would fulfill the command of 1 Peter 3.15 to give an apologia. Some famous um, evidentialist apologists I would put in that category Josh McDowell. Have you ever heard of that book? Evidence that demands a verdict. That was the one that got me um, when I came to faith in Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis to some extent, although some of these guys overlap in their categories. William Lane Craig is an evidentialist to some extent. James War uh, Warwick Montgomery, some of those uh, guys that you've heard about, in, uh, they publish all the time. And they're just constantly getting out the evidence. Evidence that demands a verdict. More evidence that demands a verdict. 
Know why you believe, Paul Little. Uh, there's lots of authors who are evidentialists. Now, of course, here's where it gets fun. There will be objections to the Christian faith. Amen? Yeah. Um, and that's where defensive or negative apologetics comes in. And here is where we attempt to rebut or at least undercut the objections raised against Christianity by its opponents. Um, two broad categories here to talk about. And uh, first of all, objections to God's existence in general. And, and these, these two subcategories actually parallel natural theology and evidentialists or classical apologetics and evidentialist apologetics. It's interesting. There are objections to God's existence in general, and then there are objections to Christianity in particular. So let's take them one at a time. Objections to God's existence in general. Two main objections are often raised. Uh, and this would be raised against a Jewish believer, a Muslim believer, or a Christian believer. You guys, you monotheists, you got a real problem on two counts. Number one, the problem of evil. Bad things happen on this planet, and because bad things happen, you can't possibly reasonably believe in a good God. Now, we spent, what, the last month in the book of Job, so I really don't have to spend a lot of time on this one tonight, do I? But basically, the argument goes like this. You believers, you say that God is all-powerful, and that God is all-good, and God is all-knowing. Well, then, that doesn't square with the presence of evil and suffering in this world, because shouldn't God stop it? Shouldn't God prevent it from happening? And if it happens, doesn't that mean God, if he does exist, he's a monster? He's not good? We talked about the theodicy triangle on Sunday morning, so I won't go over that again. We'll talk about it a little bit more in detail in the session. But just to raise it, this is the primary argument. I think this is the most, this is, well, Philip Yancey called this argument theological kryptonite. This is the tough one. This is the tough one right here. The problem of evil and suffering. And that is the number one reason given as an argument against the existence of God. Jews, Christians, and Muslims must deal with it. And we tried to deal with it in the month of August in our series in Job. But there's another one. And it's called this, the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. And basically that argument, that counter-argument to belief says this. God, where is he? I can't see him. God is, he, well, he's not. If he's there, he's not as obvious as he could be. Where is he? Your child probably asks, where is God? I can't see him. Why can't I see him? And, you know, they've got a point, quite honestly. Um, I mean, could, could God not have made a universe in which he is more on display? Could not every molecule, when you look through the telescope or the microscope, couldn't every molecule have made by God? You know, like everything in your house is made in China, made by God. Couldn't he have done that? Why didn't he? Um, they've got a point, huh? It was the, the, the atheist, Bertrand Russell, who's a mathematician and a philosopher. He said, somebody asked him one time, he, he wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And somebody asked him one time, if, if, if you, if, when you die, if there is a God and you're standing face to face, what are you going to say to him? Because you spent your life arguing against his existence. You know what he said? He said, I'm going to say, you didn't give me enough evidence. That's what Bertrand Russell said. The hiddenness of God. Deus absconditus. God is, is gone away. We, we don't know where he is. Now, this is where we would then have a discussion about natural theology. Are the arguments of natural theology, the ones that I just listed out, 
Are they sufficient cause to believe in God? Or are they not? Romans 1 says they are. Uh, But then we'd have to pursue another line of of counterattack. Israel, the whole nation of Israel had a whole lot of evidence. The pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day. I mean, parting of the Red Sea, they had a lot of evidence. Did that draw them nearer into a relationship with Yahweh? You might think that more evidence would be a slam dunk. But Jesus, how many times did Jesus say things along? You know, if the miracles that were done in, in those places, Sodom, they, they would have repented. And so it's going to be worse for you today than, than it's going to be worse for you on Judgment Day than Sodom and Gomorrah. Not every piece of evidence. It, see, so often we look at evidence through our own lenses, and that's really, we'll, we'll get there in a moment with uh, presuppositional. That's important. But I'm, I'm interested in this, this line of it. How do, you, how do you respond to that objection? So, objections to belief in God in general. The problem of pain and suffering and evil, and the problem of the hiddenness of God. Jews, Muslims, and Christians, we all have to deal with it. Now, in addition to that, there are some specific objections to Christianity in particular. And they fall in the category as follows. The challenge of, first of all, the challenge of biblical criticism. Hey, the Gospels are unreliable. There's contradictions in the Bible. How do you explain that? You guys believe in Jesus, but the Gospels, all the resurrection accounts are contradictory. How can you believe that? So they say. Uh, The Jesus Seminar. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Those guys who meet, you know, periodically to discuss, well, did Jesus say this or not? And they actually vote. They put different colored beads into a little test tube, and they vote as to whether or not they think he actually said something that's recorded in the Gospels. And their conclusion, Marcus Borg and some of the other, their conclusion is that Jesus only said 20% of what you have in your Bible. And these guys, well, Time, Newsweek, and uh, what's the other one? U.S. News and World Report. Every Advent, every Christmas and Easter, they have articles about them. These guys are quoted. Did you know that? that? They go right to these guys. Now you can't really believe the story of the baby in the manger and all that. There's contradictions in the Advent narratives. You can't believe it. Biblical criticism. Um, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, it's not just the New Testament, the Old Testament especially. Ah, the Old Testament, it's just sort of like a, it's a quilt. It's a literary quilt. Different traditions and stories were sort of stitched together. They're all contradictory. They're all meaningless. They're all stupid. They're not, and, but you got this patchwork of, of a literary document, and it's all, it's all mishmash. It, it, it's, it's not really the word of God. Biblical criticism, ever since, it really came into bloom in the 1700s. In Germany, primarily. Biblical criticism. Um, is what these guys saying true? I think the best approach is to get better at that game than they are and to know your Bible extremely well and to use some of their own arguments against them. Um, now, we don't have time to go into this tonight, but this is a major challenge. Anybody who goes to seminary, we are confronted with a whole body of literature by biblical critics. It's not the word of God. You can't trust it. It's not reliable. What do you say in response to that? Some people just sort of retreat into faith. I believe, I believe, I believe. It's in my heart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, he does not, doesn't live in his. What are you going to say to him? Now, that's a beautiful song. I'm not knocking the song. I'm just saying. And it, when it comes to giving an answer, that's not an answer. He's in my heart. I talked to him today. Well, hallelujah. They just think it's your invisible friend. <laughs> All right. Uh, and here's another one. 
not only the challenge of biblical criticism, but the challenge of religious pluralism. The challenge of religious pluralism. Tim, come on now. Given the diversity of religions in the world, do you really want to say yours is the right one? Are you really going to make that claim? Come on. Where does that leave everybody else who's not one of what you are? Really? Seriously? Have you ever heard that one? This is the other major argument when it comes to objections to Christianity in particular. You are narrow-minded, you are bigoted, you're exclusivistic, you are... It's offensive to modern and postmodern people to say that Jesus is the only way. Have you heard this? I hear it on Larry King all the time. <laughs> Not that I'm commending Larry King to you, but I hear it all the time. What do you say? If you were sitting in that seat and Larry started popping off on you, what would you say? You believe that Jesus is the only way? I, I think I would probably say something like, Larry, don't forget who we Christians say Jesus is. Jesus said he's God. So what we're saying is God is the only way to God. That makes a tremendous amount of sense, doesn't it? Okay, there's other... There's, there's other... Do you have an answer? Do you have an apologia? That's the question. Um... What about people who've never heard of Jesus? What about them? I mean, all those people are going to hell? Okay, this, these are the types of arguments you get. Is there a credible, biblical apologia in response? That's what we want to look at. When Pastor Jason gets up here and talks about Jesus being the only way. I am going to be Larry King. I'm going to take his place. I'm out of here. <laughs> Can Christ's blood be applied to people who responded in faith to general revelation? Is it the case that God only holds people responsible for the light they have, not the light they don't have? What about Melchizedek in the Old Testament? Is he saved? It sure does seem that he is, given the description in Genesis 14. He obviously never saw Jesus, or even Job. For that matter, I don't know. But we need to talk about it. Now, often the method used in negative uh, defensive apologetics is what's called presuppositional apologetics. And I'm not going to get into all of that except to say this. What this approach is saying is, look, your mind, th this presuppositionalism basically says this. Everyone has a bias. You have a bias. I have a bias. The believer has a bias. The unbeliever has a bias. Uh, and we all have our set of assumptions. We, we believe what we believe because of where we came from, how we grew up, how we were potty trained, and all the rest of it. Okay, okay we, all, we all see life through lenses. So let's just be honest with our lenses. All of our lenses are in some way fallen. The only thing you can really count on is the Word of God. So you do start with the Bible. Whereas classical apologetics doesn't use the Bible, presuppositional apologetics uses the Bible and says, that's where we start. This is all true. And now based upon, given this as true, we will now argue from that. There's a good answer for the problem of pain and suffering. There's a good answer for Christian exclusivism. There's a good answer for everything you're objecting to. But this is our premise. This is our foundation. You've got foundations too, Mr. Atheist. So just be honest about what they are. So presuppositional apologists argue from the Bible, whereas classical apologists 
to start with human reason and what is observed in natural theology. Okay? Famous proponents of presuppositional apologetics, Cornelius Van Til, John Frame, and my favorite, Francis Schaeffer. If you've heard of Francis Schaeffer. Um, and I'm sure we'll have some time to, uh, to look at some of what he's argued uh, over the course of his career before meeting the Lord. Now, uh, that's a quick introduction. That's the, you, I just gave you the terrain. That's the bird's eye view. And that itself is pretty exhausting. <laughs> but there it is. But I have to ask the question, should we be involved in apologetics? I mean, really. Can you ever really successfully argue anybody into the kingdom? Can you really do an, a cerebral arm wrestling match? And fo- I mean, is this something we should be doing? Not everybody would say yes to that question. But I'd like to take you on a brief scriptural journey. Then we're going to have Pastor Jason come up and tell, tell us why this is such an important study for him. But let's turn in your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see how the early church actually did apologetics. And we'll just, we're not going to look at all these passages, but just a couple of them to demonstrate that this isn't some modern invention, some attempt to turn everybody into some sort of scholar. Or, or some overly cerebral, pedantic exercise in learning big words. Luke chapter 1. Look at how Luke starts his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, already you've heard some apologetic words like fulfilled, Evidential apologetics uses fulfilled prophecy. Eyewitnesses, this is testimony. I've seen this. Others, I've interviewed people who've seen this. Now watch this. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. The third gospel begins with a statement of apologetics. I've investigated this. I've written down an orderly account. And the, my purpose in doing this was to, de- so to give you some certainty, to give you some, some assurance that what I'm about to tell you is true. Right out of the chute, Luke starts with apologetics. How about Jesus himself? John chapter 20. Luke wrote his apologetics. Jesus did it in the flesh. I'm sure you've heard of Thomas. What is Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 24. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord after the resurrection. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas is from Missouri. Show me. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You want evidence, Thomas? Bam! 
Here you go. I love this. I love this. We, we learn a lot of, Jesus wants to be believed in. Jesus gives sufficient evidence to believe in him. That's what you need here. Here. That's what it takes. That's what you get. What was Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. I call that the ultimate apologetic right there. I mean, at least in terms of Jesus. Hey, saw him die. Now he sees him alive. Okay, a couple more. Acts chapter 1. Uh, we won't go through this whole list. I'd encourage you to look at the, the whole list, and there, that's just a sampling. But you see the early church doing apologetics. You see Jesus doing apologetics. And yet he's so gentle, he never compels belief. You have to compel belief. It's not love. Acts chapter 1. In my former, this is Luke again. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave, what's next? What do you have in your version? Many convincing proofs that he was alive. Wow. Or convicting, in, in your translation, a couple ways this is said. Um, now, the word proof is not used here as we would use it in, in scientific proof, but evidences that lead to a warranted conclusion Jesus is alive. Jesus, again, doing apologetics. Now, if you turn over the page, chapter 2 of Acts, beginning with verse 14, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, Peter then stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. There's our word explain. The early church filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues, and, and let me explain this to you. Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. In verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he did what? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And so forth and so on. I'd encourage you, get a concordance and check out the word persuade. How often the word persuade shows up in the book of Acts? See the early church doing apologetics. And sometimes they contextualize their apologetics. When Paul goes into the synagogue, he, he doesn't have to start with creation. They all believe. He starts with Abraham and he talks about fulfilled prophecy. When Paul goes to Gentile places, though, he starts, he has to go all the way back to creation. God made you. God loves you. They didn't know that. As far as they were concerned, they came up out of the primordial soup. I find it amazing that the early church did apologetics, and so often in church that we, don't, we resist this. this. This is I'm not wired this way. I don't like. No, are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you? Well, for you that may be. There are various levels to this. See, not everybody is called to be Ravi Zacharias or William Lane Craig. 
you might just be interested in this subject for a personal reason, internal apologetics. In other words, your faith being strengthened. Hey, this is good stuff. I never heard about these archaeological discoveries. Tell me more. That's cool. And you're, you're here only for this reason. But some of you, this is for you, kitchen table apologetics. You sit down and maybe you've got somebody in your family. They're not convinced. And, and you're just interested in having a conversation with a cup of coffee with a friend or a family member and, and, and you want to talk. Some for you, it's, it's a little bit wider than family. Social settings, sphere of influence, the, the people at work, the classroom, perhaps. University apologetics. You go to university, Joey, tell me about it, huh? You go to university, you're going to be doing apologetics if you're a believer. Because most of your profs, profs won't be. You go to a secular university. How about interfaith dialogues? You ever been involved in one of those? Ah, I was. And I watched, I, I was part of a, a, an interfaith dialogue with an Islamic group on cam- the campus of WVU. And what happened was almost all of the Christians lost their faith by the end of the night. One of the reasons I got really interested in this subject. Because I thought we did pretty good. It was fun to watch Mr. Imam say, that you believe in Isaiah, don't you? You believe Isaiah is the scripture, the word of God. Yeah, sure. Well, why do you cut him off in Isaiah 7, 14? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You believe that Jesus was virgin born, and according to Isaiah 7, 14, he was virgin born. But look at his name. And that's when he got all sanctimonious on me. Well, Tim, you must understand. And he gave some highfalutin, cockamamie answer that had no intellectual basis, not persuasive at all. But that night, a lot of Christians went, I can't believe this guy. And how about formal debates? We're going to show you some video clips, not tonight, but some video clips of guys like Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig doing apologetics at the debate level. But wherever you are in the spectrum, we want to equip you, try to. As I said, Pastor Jason and I are not professional apologists, but we have a passion for the subject. And we love to dialogue with people who don't bring on the atheists. We're going to love them in Jesus' name and with gentleness and respect. Try to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Now, Pastor Jason's going to come. He's going to talk about why this is so important for him. And uh, I'll come back and we'll, we'll wrap it up. But Pastor Jason, come on up here. and oh, you have a mic? Okay. Hi. It's good to see everybody out here. Um, as Pastor Tim said, we both kind of have the same love in this, of this subject. Uh, we, we both found out that we both kind of love this subject together. Um, but th- we kind of have different paths, and he might share a little bit of his path of how he got there. For me, um, I grew up as a, as a believer and almost since diaper time. I mean, it was about five years old. I put, first put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and uh, trusted him to save me from my sins. And from that point on, I mean, I was Christian. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, wonderful, godly parents, put me in a Christian school. I think I've said this before, I probably had Christian underoos, you know, the Moses underoos or something. I mean, I was just Christian through and through. Everything I had, everything I did, I don't even know if I could count on one hand how many unsaved friends I had. Um, And if I did, it was just simply to give them a Bible kind of thing. And everybody I knew was Christian. So for me, this this is the culture I grew up in. I grew up in understanding, believing, taking this just as, 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 as truth, not even really exploring anything else. And that's, and that's good. My parents did what the Bible said, and they taught me the truth from, from when I was a child. Um, but when I got a little bit older, I got out of high school, graduated from a Christian high school, 
And um, for some strange reason, the Lord said, hey, go to Automotive Training Center. Go, go, go learn about uh, cars. Okay? Uh, I don't know why. But he did. Um, and so I went there, and boy, that was a rude awakening. I'll tell you what. Um, you're, sta- you're sitting there with a bunch of guys and, and a bunch of grease monkeys there wrenching under some cars, and you get some interesting questions and some interesting words, and um, they could see that something was a little different than me, uh, in me. And they, would, uh, they started asking some questions. Well, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? Um, and I remember standing there kind of going, you don't believe that too? I thought everybody did. You know, <laughs> That's what we were all supposed to do. Um, but some of the questions they threw at me really, really kind of threw me for a loop. And I had to take a step back and say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I was told this was all true. I was told there is one God. I was told that, there is, that, that he is a trinity. I was told that, that there's absolute truth. I was told all these things, and, and rightly so. But how do I know them to be true? I could have just given the pat answer of, well, that's what my mommy told me when I was a kid. Or, or um, you know, I just believe it. And, you know, I just believe it, and you can believe what you want to believe. But that wouldn't help me to be able to reach these gentlemen, would it? They, they would just say, well, you know, that's fine. You believe what you want to believe, but we're going to be over here doing the things you don't like us doing, so we'll leave it at that. And I wanted to be able to reach them, but I also wanted to, to, to find out for sure, what was I standing on? Was it solid, or was it just something that was spoon-fed me when I was a kid, and I really had no choice over? So I really had to get into this. I really had to, to go back, take a step back. I had to take what I knew to be true um, experientially, let's put it that way. What God has been through with me through my life since age five, and I've shared with you guys some of what, what, the, what I've been through, what the Lord has walked me through um, in my own life, what I knew to be true and felt to be true, I had to kind of say, okay, let me take this just for a second, and just in order for it for me to really know if Christianity is true, I have to have the possibility that it may be wrong. Otherwise, I'm not really investigating. So I'm going to put it right here, hold on to it. I know it's true. I'm not going to walk away and go test other things, but I'm going to hold on to it right here. And now, let's see, let's hold it up and see, if, is that really true? Is there really one God? How do I know that? Is he really a trinity? How do I know that? How do I know any of this is true? How do I know the Bible is the word of God? How do I know that it wasn't made up? How do I know that what they have there was what, we originally, what was originally written? I had to take it and put it aside and really look at it. And after doing that, I found that the biblical Christianity is the only thing on which to stand that isn't faulty. That doesn't falter under every question, every problem. The problem of evil, as we talked about, Pastor Tim touched on, the problem of evil is a problem. But it's a problem for everybody. Evil just doesn't happen to believers. It happens to everybody. So which one of these uh, worldviews best answers this question? And after examining them and stepping aside and looking at it, biblical Christianity is the only one that can satisfy with, with, with any great amount of satisfaction, any and all of these problems and all of these questions of, of meaning, life, destiny, purpose in life, um, and uh, what will eventually happen to us. So uh, this, was, this was my road, was to say, this is what I was given. I had to take a step back and say, is this really true now? I need to take a step back and say, is this, if I'm going to be able to share this with someone, I need to know myself what I'm standing on. And it has only served to strengthen my faith to which no one can shake my faith. Not because I'm not going to listen to them with an open mind. That's fine. But I, I, know, I know what I have. I know what, what I've, I've investigated it. I'm not living blindly by faith. This isn't a blind faith. I examined it and I found it to be true. So let me tell you how I can find it to be true as well. Now what's also interesting is there's another aspect to this. And of course, hearing from me, it's discipleship as well. Because the problem is, as we talked about, um, you're always to be ready to give an answer when people ask you for the hope that you have within you. But the problem is, they should be asking. And if they're not asking, that's another side of the coin there. 
You need to have that answer, but you also need to live in such a way that they see something different in you that they have a question to ask of you, right? And so I, I kind of came at it where I lived differently because I grew up in that culture, so people were asking the questions. Now I need to come over here and make sure I had the answers. But I would encourage you, as we study what these answers are, also take a look at your life. Make sure people, when they see you, even have a question to ask of you. That's very important, too. So that was my journey as to why apologetics, to me, it means so much, because for me, it strengthened my faith. It got me to make sure that, my, that what I had been taught, what I had been learning, what I believed in truly was solid. And that was, for me, um, internal, as, we, as he talked about the different areas there. It, for me, it was internally. It was personally um, um, fulfilling. It was something I needed to have in order to know that my faith was true, but also to be able to, as I've had conversations with atheists and Jehovah's Witnesses and all these other people, to be able to, to, be able to share with them and kind of clear the brush for them so that they can uh, see the gospel of, of Jesus Christ in a clear and um, in a very easy way. So for me, that was where I, uh, that's, that's my road to the, for the apologetics, to the apologetics love. Um, Pastor Tim, I think you wanted to share a little bit. Of... I'm actually looking forward to sharing some of my apologetics mistakes where I've blown it. Where I wasn't, where I didn't do it with gentleness and respect. To end, let me just uh, highlight two resources for you that you might be interested in. And if there's any questions, we'll take them briefly. Our time's just about gone. One is called A Pocket Handbook of Christian Apologetics. It's very thin. Now, that's appealing to some of you. I get that. Who has a lot of time to read pedantic literature that's like three, inch, three, three knuckles thick? This is by Peter Kreeft and Donald Tekeli. The handbook, it's just setting forth. The terrain, a little bit like we've done tonight. Um, my, my theology profs would be very upset that we did all of that in one night, but I wanted to give you the flyover. Another good one that is, I'm sorry, the title again, Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And I'll have these up there if you want to look closer at them. Before you buy them, Peter Kreeft, yes, K-R-E-E-F-T, and it's about a quarter inch thick. So, <laughs> Another good one, and this is kind of fairly recent, Tim Keller the Reason for God, The Reason for God, a very engaging writer, a very dynamic speaker. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and uh, he's a fantastic mind, but he really puts the cookies on the lower shelf where we can all get our minds around them. This is fantastic, and uh, it really goes to some of the questions that people ask about Christianity, um, such as there can't just be one true religion, whole chapter on that. How could a good God allow suffering Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for so much injustice. Science has disproved Christianity, and on and on it goes. Questions that people are asking and for which there are good answers. Again, this title is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Belief, the subtitle is Belief in an Age of Skepticism. So, um, tonight was loaded. We covered a whole lot of ground and a whole lot of history in just 90 minutes. But I hope it was informative. I hope you're just a little bit excited about coming back and getting specific and going issue by issue and talking about that answer.